Hey everyone, it's uh, Mark Patton here, and uh, you're listening to The CinePod. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello, Mr. Ben Rock. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hello, old friend. Boy, that sounds like something out of like a Star Wars movie, calling me old friend. <laughs> I, I, I guess I am your old friend, though. It's been yeah, it's, it's like 20 something years, 20 something years. Holy crap. Where where do mm. the days go? It's it's a blur. And, and only 10 of them spent doing this podcast. That, that's true. Only 10. So, so Ben, uh, we have a fantastic guest on the show today. We have Mark Patton, who is the DP of a show I really, really liked currently on Apple TV called Silo. Uh, have Have you tried it yet? I have not. I, I keep meaning to, and I have not had a chance to check it out. Uh, I'm sorry, Mark, if you're listening to the sound of my voice. I definitely will watch it. I hear nothing but great things. Well, it's a good thing I interviewed Mark then, because I saw it, and I loved it, and he's well, so much fun I, to I talk to. I do make to. it a habit of, before I interview somebody, I uh, I usually do see their work that we're there to talk about. It's kind of a little little professional pro tip for those of you looking to interview cinematographers. Uh, watch the movies first, or that, the that, TV shows. That is not a habit. That is a definitive marching order that we must always do we do not talk to anyone without actually having seen their stuff that that's kind of how we that we do that would be this. a little embarrassing you know it it seems like it would make it difficult to have a competent conversation about someone's you know body of work and the type of stuff that they do but i'll tell you it does not stop other people because i've heard i've heard it and i've heard the Quite stories possibly. oh yes well you know it's, I'm, not, I'm not i've never done it but i could probably fake my way through it if i had to hmm, yeah but I would never do that because why would we be doing this? Obviously, there is no reason to be doing this at all. Hey, I mean, uh, besides all the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Man, you're making me cry. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, yes, all the money. That's the secret to podcasting. Let me tell you, folks out there, if you're listening, start a podcast, they say. No, we, we, we did not do this for the money. Not we even did. for a second do we do this for the money. So, And we have succeeded. <laughs> we have succeeded. Anyway, so Ilya, what should we talk about today for Close Focus? I'm going to say that we should talk about uh, the strike. The strike is uh, entering a new phase as SAG. Well, one of the strikes is over. That's got, right. We, like, w- as we re- reported last week, there was an agreement, but we didn't know anything about it. And now I'm not going to sit here and summarize everything that the writers got, but the writers got quite a bit. I would actually point people to better podcasts that cover this, like Strike Talk from Deadline or The Town uh, mm. from Puck News. I agree. Uh, or, or The Business or actually Script Notes. Script Notes did a, a great rundown of everything the Writers Guild got in the agreement. And I was actually wrong. I thought that before the strike ended, the membership of the Writers Guild would have to vote to end it. But apparently the leadership could vote to end it. And then that contract goes to a vote. I have yet to talk to one WGA member and I have talked to several. I have yet to talk to one who is unhappy with the deal. No, it seems like a a very good deal, and I think it bodes well for the actors. Uh, assuming yeah. assuming that everything kind of continues in the same trajectory that it is right now, it's really interesting though because the ratification vote has gone has just gone out as we're we're talking now to the eleven thousand WGA members. Mm-hmm. Just to 
give our listeners an understanding of the size difference between the WGA and SAG-AFTRA, there's 160,000 members of SAG-AFTRA. So we're talking about beyond an order of magnitude difference between these two guilds. The actors wield a tremendous amount of power and they're asking for a lot. But I think really what I think is interesting is the existential threat that is being perceived right now with everyone talking about AI. And so mm-hmm. really uh, the the actors are looking for a couple of things. One, they're looking for some profit sharing. They're looking for residuals. And two, I think they need to be reassured with more than lip service that computers are not going to just replace actors out there tomorrow which well, no, uh, notoriously in at the very end of the sag talks before the screen actors guild went on strike on the very last day supposedly the amptp sprung the idea of background extras coming in getting scanned getting one day's worth of pay and then the production companies owning their likeness to use without permission in perpetuity however they wanted and i was like they wanted SAG to strike if they waited to the last day and they sprung that on SAG. That's a nutty proposition. Like if they came in and said, hey, we'll scan you, we'll pay you for one day, and then you get to sign off every time we use it and you'll get a small residual check, then we could be arguing about the size of that residual check. Mm-hmm. Not, not uh, A friend of mine who lives on my street makes a living, supports a family of four as a background extra. That is his job. And if you said to anyone listening to to the sound of our voices, hey, come in, we're going to collect a bunch of data from you, and then we're going to make your in- entire way that you support yourself irrelevant, who, who would agree to that? Like, that's just a crazy thing to ask. And a giant portion of SAG's membership are background actors. It's true. Yeah, there's like, quite, there's it, quite it, a few people. It, yeah. And I mean, the thing about also a SAG strike, and I feel like I'm kind of stating the obvious here, but like... Actors are a group of people who a smaller percentage of them are actively working at any given time. So there may be 100,000 of them. I don't know exactly how many of them are working, but I feel like threaten them with not being able to work. A lot of them aren't working anyway. I feel like they can wait out the AMPTP better than any other guild because my guess is probably a higher percentage of the Writers Guild are working writers. Not all. Every union has a lot of people in it who got in on one thing and pay their dues and keep going to the meetings but aren't working. Every union of all kinds, I'm assuming, outside of the entertainment industry as well. But I'm guessing, you know, like there's just so many SAG actors. There is. So uh, there's a lot of people paying very close attention. And and ultimately, I think a lot of the negotiations are not about the 1% of actors. It's not about the people who are doing extremely, extremely well, the the big star celebrities. It is about the uh, the people who are uh, work a day, working hard mm-hmm. and struggling to make it out there. And the gains and increases that they get for those people are really, really meaningful. It's not the same as, you know, people who have their own contracts that, that are, that, you know, the SAG contracts uh, required for them to, to be on the show. But ultimately, that's not the deal that they're working under. They're working for much, much larger dollars. But, you know, when you end up, you know, let's say maybe a dozen notches down from the top of the, uh, you know, the, the, the call sheet, when you're talking about people yeah. who, you know, are, are day players are coming in to, to work, you know, uh, days here or days there or weeks maybe on a job, 
all of this stuff matters big time for them. It matters, uh, you know, what are they going to do? Because it's notoriously difficult, of course, to work as an actor, I'd say, to break in and get started. But the competition that you face to perpetuate, the competition that you always face, because there's so many people waiting in the wings to be a director. And a lot of that competition is noise. But like, if if you're an actor and you're going out to audition for something and that casting director is seeing, you know, 100 people a day, which I've certainly been on projects where we saw 100 people a day, you have to rise above a hundred people, a oh, hundred yeah. people just that day. Oh, you know, sure. Like, oh, sure. like, like things will cast sometimes for weeks. Uh, you're not seeing a hundred people a day for weeks. If, if you're casting for six weeks, you're probably seeing, you know, 50 people a day. Still, you've got to rise way above that. And even if like two thirds of them are completely wrong or are not that good or are basically fluff yeah, in terms of your casting yeah, process, yeah, sure. you still have to stick out. It's so hard. It's, it's the toughest thing. I have to say though, look at the writer's guild agreement. And think about how a lot of those ideas translate over to SAG and SAG's needs, which SAG's needs are obviously very different from the Writers Guild's needs. But it's like the AMPTP and and I think that they're having these meetings like a short distance from my house at the at the Sherman Oaks Galleria. It's at the uh, SAG after office. I just read. Oh, so, is it? OK, yeah. well, so I, I think it's the Wilshire. Writers Guild yeah. ones were, were at the Sherman Oaks Galleria. I missed my chance to drink <laughs> coffee and see Bob Iger like, <laughs> bust in like, there. Where's my Starbucks? It's a very good Starbucks right there. Anyway, but they cannot come to the table to SAG with less than they gave the writers. So they're going to get at least what the writers got, you know, in terms of reporting residuals, transparency, all that stuff. And then the AI language is going to have to be different because it's actors, not writers. But it's still I feel like their idea of scanning background actors and owning them for perpetuity, they, they showed their asses, quite frankly, by even proposing that because now they're going to have to pay if they want to do any version of that in the future. And, you know, they do. Yes, indeed. Uh, my, my bigger point before, by, by talking about the the breaking in, getting your foot in the door is the hard part. But then once you get your foot in the door, you face being in the door with all the other people who do what you do. And when you're talking about writers and directors and particularly actors with a 160,000 strong guild, I assure you that most of the people who are uh, background actors do not consider themselves only a background actor. They're a thespian. They are someone who will rise to the occasion if someone is plucked, if they are plucked out of extras holding and said, hey, we want to give you a line. Can you do a line? They are ready, willing and able to remember that line and and do it 100 percent. And I mean, uh, look at look at anyone in the background in any of your favorite shows. And assume that they have played, you know, Lady Macbeth or King Lear or Willie Loman or like these people have all acted. They're not just like pulling people off the street and saying, hey, you, you kind of look like a person. Stand back here. They have to repeat their stuff. There was a guy who uh, his name is Brandon Clark, who was a member of the theater company that I was a member of. And I remember in the social network, he was he's an extra. That's what he did. And he played one of Zuckerberg's lawyers. He's in like every shot where Zuckerberg's in a deposition sitting right next to Jesse Eisenberg, looking like a lawyer and quite honestly acting. He doesn't have any lines, but he's he's always doing something. You know, there's a reason that you don't just like prop a corpse up there. You have a real person doing this. That's true. Also, it would get smelly. Yeah, it would get yeah, so smelly on the <laughs> sets. Yeah, you I knew you'd literally get, you couldn't resist talking about corpses. So, so Ben, I think we should get to our interview with Mark Patton. On that note, on that happy <laughs> note, here's Mark Patton. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. 
I'm joined now by the cinematographer, the lead cinematographer behind the Apple TV series Silo, Mark Patton, BSC. Mark, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. It's my pleasure. It really is. I'm very honored to be part of it. Well, we're really honored to have you. I'm just going to start off. I loved Silo. Like It was my, my short end on the show uh, earlier uh, this year. I've been telling lots of people about it. I feel like it's sort of a, a slow burn, too, because it's not like a lot of other series out there. Mm. For our audience who's never heard of it or is not on Apple TV, how would you do the you know, one-sentence description? How would, you, how would you describe it to someone? I think society lost in a mile deep vessel that's traveling very, very slowly through time. You know, for over 350 years, these people have, have lived in this very odd spaceship. I think that's really a fantastic, I mean, it's a science fiction. It's a fantastic way to, to describe this. And wow, it's an amazing cast. I feel like it is big budget television at the highest level. And it maintains this incredible quality for 10 hours. You guys do really, really amazing stuff with the show. And one of the things that I'm guessing that this was either a delight to shoot, like it was amazing, or it was incredible, tedious work. I have no idea what it was because it seems to me that all of your sets have ceilings. They have, you have ceilings everywhere and you take full advantage of that in your camera choices and your, your framing and the amount of practical lights that are coming from walls and ceilings and from up high. Can you talk just a little bit about the undertaking of this project and, and what it meant to, you know, build all these sets and build all these sets with, I'm guessing, ceilings that either fly in and fly out or are practical locations. How did this go down? How did this happen? I mean, it's really interesting. The project before this, I was down in Cape Town, South Africa, and got the call from Morton Tilden, the, the director. And he said, look, maybe do you want to come up to a, a part of the UK called Essex? And uh, we'd taken over a, an old KFC, you know, three KFC cold stores. And uh, my gaffer, Brandon Evans, was saying, look, there's nothing in these places, but Apple have greenlit the show and we got a retrofit these three sites and start world building. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. But I had no idea that I was going to actually be living underground like a troglodyte for, for almost over a year. You know, Whoa. it was literally like living, going to work as we went into the winter. There was no, there was very little sunlight that I saw, but when I came out the back of it, it took about three or four months to decompress. And then to watch the show afresh with fresh eyes, the worlds that as you go deeper and deeper down to the heartbeat of what that whole slow moving ship really represented through time, you know, and it's a, it's an odd mix. You can't put a finger on it. It's not sci-fi, it is sci-fi, you know, but walking into the art department and working with Gavin and just to understand how society would really move together in terms of how would we all evolve if we could only live in this one vessel? How do we maintain our minds? And it was strange, you know, it just come out of the pandemic. So it was odd experiencing again, going into this locked up culture and yet breathing in a, a type of expanse that we could engage and build a world where our protagonists could flow through. And I think that that was really inherent into what Gavin, the director, Morton, and myself really wanted to achieve, along with set deck, you know, and the yes, painters. Yes, of course. Because yeah. 
the richness of the tones and that I hope that you could really feel the texture. I think that was one of the big things we all wanted to, to make that the silo a, a big character. It is. It is uh, omnipresent. It is in every scene. And mm. I can't I, get rid of it. <laughs> no, not, not at all. I, I, I was actually struck so, you know, more than once when I was watching this, that it must be a similar experience to those who work on submarine movies where you're like, you know, you're, yeah. you're always, you're always inside, yeah. you're inside of a confined space. And even though the confined space of the silo is enormous and it, that yeah. thousands of people are living there in the story. There's no sunlight in this, although it's really interesting because at the very beginning, this, you know, they say memorable characters have memorable introductions. And the first time we see David Oelio sitting at his desk, it very much feels like sunlight streaming in. And I had this thought like this must be very intentional because we don't know the world yet. And so anyone who's who's seeing this, it's like it's just another day somewhere. He's in this office. It's this thing. But then as the, the show moves on, you really don't have many moments like that. You really don't have many moments of what would appear to be sunlight. No, it's like you are in this omnipresent, almost dungeon. I feel like when I look at it and I'm looking at your shots and reverse shots and, you know, everything, there's practical lights built into the set everywhere. How much business is those practical lights doing? Are you relying on those those practical lights for for your, your key or your fill? Or they really are just sort of accents in the background. How does that conversation go with your production designer and, and set builders to make sure that you're, I assume that all of those are on dimmers. I'm assuming you can control them as needed, but tell me a little bit about lighting with these practicals, making the practicals mm. part of your, your imagery. I mean, I think the overview earlier was, this is a mile long underground. There's not even light that filters through from above. So even when it touches the surface where the camera is seeing it, that's not a glass dome. So it doesn't, it's not affected by the planet in any way. So the challenge was, is, you know, where is our source coming from? What, what is it that is going to motivate light? a mile down and um, I did a bit of research and had heard about these valleys in, in Switzerland and Austria on the eastern side in the winter who, because of the sun's path, would never see daylight. So mm. what would happen is that the cantons came up with these concepts of heliotropes, which were giant mirrors which would gather light on the west side and then literally reflect the rays of light onto the other edges of the valley and therefore those societies would then receive the light during during the winter months and i thought hmm that's quite interesting so maybe we could you know along with our visual effects director daniel rafiger come up with some kind of giant heliotrope that could then be switched on with whatever light sources were at the top of this thing and then literally gather the light and flow that out back down the whole structure and then that would literally disseminate to nothing as you went through all the different levels. So the top always feels a little fresher and cooler. And then as you got into mechanical, literally the lights, the practicals would then really start to take over. So the helix is the connective tissue to the society and to everything that transmutes up and down that whole set. So every light was designed. There was not one light that was bought. So it was all... You know, everything that you see was built in the many hours laboriously working out what lights would work where and what part of society would use those fixtures. So I wanted to allow the characters to, to work any set that we had. Yes, it's augmented, but there's no 
really hard light anywhere. That was that was one of the rules. You know, you, you kind of. I think I broke it at the end of the year because I just wanted to use some hard lights. As you do, as you do. Yeah. You know, you, but it was a real exercise in constraint or manipulating reflective light. And, you know, I, I really used this new system without getting too technical, this CRLS system, which is these pure mirror boards that have been made by the CRLS company. And they started to really throw the light around. So that was technically quite a good tool to have in the pocket, you know, to make, to make the world grow. I'm a huge fan of reflected light. And I think that what CRLS does is, is quite interesting. My, my company sells CRLS lighting in the interest of full disclosure, but, you know, I, our CRLS reflector boards, as do many other people out there. Yeah, but I think that they they've done some really interesting stuff and it, it's a really nice tool. It's a nice paintbrush to have in your pocket because yeah. if you need to bounce things around and move things up and uh, sometimes for my taste, they're a little on the hard side. They're a little bit harsh, but at the same time, yeah. uh, reflected light gives a different specular quality and it, it, yeah. it just does. The, the photons as they're they're bouncing and spreading and diffusing and then refracting off of other objects and diffracting. Yeah. All of that stuff is creating uh, a different sort of ambience of light. And I kept thinking as I was watching Silo, I'm really actually very pleased to hear, hear you say that, you know, kind of confirm the suspicion that I had that, yeah. that there was reflected lights going, going on uh, perhaps in, in many of these scenes and in, in many large bounces probably. But my, yeah. my feeling is, is that it is very much in the indoor world, a lot of what how people see people. This is what we see when we're not being lit. You know, when yeah. we see... Uh, you know, you might have some lights in the ceiling and those lights in the ceilings hit different surfaces, take on other colors and textures and, and bring it to you. And that's what sort of a, a reflected, diffracted light feels like. Yeah. And I think it's why so many people love the way someone looks standing by a window. Well, it's, you know, the panes in that window is creating a diffraction. It's changing the way things, things are happening. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox here, but I'm so pleased just to hear you say this. I, it, was, it was so much fun for, for me to hear it. Uh, tell me a little bit more about this because it's true. There's a lot of soft light, lots of pools of light. You have yeah, soffits and ceilings, and these soffits and ceilings often will have lighting instruments sort of built into them. How are you uh, incorporating the production design then into the aesthetic that you've come up with, which which I love? Yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah. you know, working alongside Gavin, we you know we could put in put in you know all this new lead strip now. So and then you know we would just manipulate those sources. But I think it's just how do you get contrast and how do you engage the audience visually, full 10 hours was the biggest challenge. So it was really the world building and then getting down to color and tone in each level or each area where we could go into the production design department and go, look, this is, this is the mids, this is mechanical. Even down to the point where I was thinking, you know, if it's been 300 years and it's just so potent down there with atmospherics, I literally got old units and just asked them to paint it with bitumen. And then that created that really yellow, acrid, almost uber fincher yellow. <laughs> Do yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, of course. And so, oh, yeah. Mechanical so, in particular. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was a real big reference. I just thought, you know, how can we almost let the audience feel what, what it's like to be in these societies? And I think I really wanted to get that over not to let the photography sing in any way, but it was just how do we get texture into the image? And that would be an amazing crew of painters who would add lacquer and then, 
use all the old tricks that I'd never seen used. You know, how do you how do you make cracks in the wall glisten? You know, and seep and and really evolve and get into that much detail. And I I hope that that then allowed the backdrop for the actors to really inhabit those worlds and make the audience believe that there are different levels which each of these individuals can engage with. I think you did an excellent job with that. And definitely exactly as you're describing the the central staircase helix and the amount of filtered light and the colors, there's a very clear delineation between the different strata of the society and as things sort of move. And talking in about memorable characters having memorable entrances, the first time we mm. see Juliet inside mm. the centrifuge, you know, uh, you know, machinery, there's all of this glowing orange and red sort of stuff going on. And it's in some ways it is the most intense uh, that she's covered in sweat and grease. And you almost don't have any other light or thing like that in the entire show. Yeah. So you've got this like this really intense, like it's visceral. You can feel the heat that's coming from inside of there. I feel like it all just fits so inside of, of this world. And you're right. It's like low tech sci-fi, you know, it's the, low tech. It, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, if you want, it's, it's lo-fi sci-fi. It is, it's like the vinyl record of sci-fi, which is That's so much great. fun yeah. because we've, we've not really seen, you know, so much science fiction is slick and almost it's feels clean. like, you know, yeah. the Apple store of, of science fiction or some mm-hmm. sort of, uh, and even if it is more lived in, but this is, there is texture, there is an, an antiquing that has gone on. It feels like in every surface and it feels like with everything. And yeah. uh, I was actually amazed as I was watching this. I, I kept thinking to myself, this is too, this in some ways is too clean. Like I, I feel like the, like society would be, would be even filthier than this. But I'll say that everyone still looks like a star. They look amazing. Like everything about this looks, everyone's dental work is incredible. So it is like, you know, <laughs> but um. I got to say that it's a fantastic world building and I'm so glad that you went through all of those steps and all of that research because it so yeah. easily couldn't have been that. It so easily could have been a different sort of look that I don't think would have reinforced the story. And I want to make sure that I understood you correctly. At the beginning of this, you said you'd, mm. you'd never looked at the source material. You never looked at the original book before uh, before the world building. Wow. No, oh. no, no, no. I mean, obviously, Hugh Howie came in, you know, the original writer and there was Obviously, we then got into it, and I also got into the graphic novel a little. But really, Morton and Gabin really got into what is the sci-fi. It's, it's low, muted lo-fi. Like you said, it's really analog. And uh, I think, you know, sonically, that's a, a great way to visually explain the actual padding of the feet or where everybody goes. Is It's always wet. It's always grim. And yet there, you know, each little room or nuance or new set that you go onto, you can really get into the minutiae of how these people really would be. It's, it's a bit like the movie Snowpiercer. Oh, yes. So that, you know, mm-hmm. you go from on the Y-axis, society at the back of the train who are trying to claw to the front. And this was like you flip the train vertically and now you've got that whole system and it's not so, you know, you've got to climb those stairs. You've got to climb your way out of society. And Juliet tries to do that. You know, she's, there's something that's driving her to get to escape. And I think that that, that one really resonated with me then. And how does, how do you visualize society as you go through all these different layers and colors and mutations of it? 
it's it was a challenge, you know, because it, the, the story was 10 hours. So you got to really dig into it. This job seems like it must have been very technical to me. I know a lot of a lot of jobs are about art and the technical can kind of fade to the background. And it's really just about creative expression. Mm. But because the best DPs all are part artist and all are part plumber and you have to have that blend. You can't be all art. You can't be all plumber. You can't you can't be just one. Where do you think you fall on, on that line? How much plumbing is is involved in silo? How much how much of the the testing and the work that the, the prep and everything else that goes into this, that is sort of the unglamorous stuff that people don't really talk about. That is part of every good prep and every going into every show. You want to understand all of your tools and understand all of the, the technical stuff to get there. Yeah. Uh, where, where do you fall on that line? How would you rate yourself? Yeah. I mean, I'm not like uber technical. I kind of rely on, on my teams around me, but I think because I've been doing sci-fi for so long, I kind of Suddenly people ask me, how did you achieve that? And it's suddenly, you know, after so many years, you you kind of build up an innate response on, on what is right and what's wrong. So, yeah, there's a, there was a fair bit of mining to be done in the uh, digging around in the technical aspects. But really, I think that the, the, the most important thing is to, if you've got the crews that can support you, if, you, if you're pushing something a little bit way out there, that's not. It's not the way, I think I loved your expression of like, you know, let the image sing or let the music really infuse itself into that imagery. And I think that that's a, a really good way to go about this. And it was just really honing the various rooms with the technicality where it needed to happen. But overall, remain committed to the, to the story and let that ensemble really explore every aspect of that set. And I think uh, as long as we remained in that world and had the technical backup from our VFX department, you know, I was allowed to fill it up with Atmos. You know, I was allowed to put wet down. And I think that the VFX team really embraced that. They didn't say, no, you can't do that. And mm. I think when that really helps you as a photographer to really let what's in your head expand. And I think, uh, you know, the teams were, were really liberating in their playfulness to allow the photography to really explore Hugh Howey's world and Morton Tilden's expression of, of, of the story. I think that's a, that's a great place for us to leave talking about Silo and talk a little bit about you. How did you get to this point in your life? If you start to look at all the various forking paths that, that you could go, when did becoming a cinematographer, becoming a DP for features and television, when was that your conscious choice and the, and the direction you were headed? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I majored in environmental science and then the funding for the scientific interest that I was managing kind of was taken away. But in, I was doing a lot of still photography and I thought, how can I expand on that? And uh, came up to London and kind of got in at the bottom end of, you know, the production company, which were, were very nurturing and allowed me to grow on that front. And i got involved in setting up a little camera department for a commercials production company and flew around the world on hair commercials for almost two years with 16, two 16 mil SR3s and a, a, you know, a set of lenses. And then I was away, you know, then you get your teeth into it. And mm. uh, I didn't go to film school. I wasn't formally trained, but I, I, I've had very good mentors along the way. And I think uh, it's a difficult path, but I think you just got to keep tapping away at it, you know, to all the young upcoming people who 
want to really pursue image and image creation and, and the wider aesthetic of wonderful people that you meet on the way, it's a, a really beautiful creative flow to, to be part of. You know, I'm very thankful to a lot of people who, who've got me to this point. I'm a lucky boy, man. Yeah. Super you, lucky man. So what's next for you? Or do you have something in, in development right now? Or what, do you have something going yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, we, we just finished uh, the second season of Andor. Mm, so oh, that fantastic. Was, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, again, <laughs> get me out of the sci-fi trench. But um, <laughs> Okay, well, we're, you're going to have to come back when, but, when, that, when you can talk yeah, about that. Because, I, I, you know, it's, yeah. it's, my favorite, it's my favorite thing that's, that's ever had the name Star Wars on it. So I, 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 can't, I, I can't wait to see season two. So, yeah, we finished, I've just finished that up and I've just managed a, a modern day spy thriller in London town. Ooh. That, which that, is, whoa, I don't have to worry about the removing cars or, or any blue screens or, yeah, so that, then that's, uh, uh, that's, that's underway now. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we right. were three well, weeks out from uh, rolling that camera again. Oh, spectacular. I, I'm going to look forward to finding out more about that with interest and, of course, and or season two. Mark, is there a place online that you exist in the socials? If someone wanted to reach out to you, do you do an Instagram or do you do any of the, those things? Are you, are you in those places? I, I do do the Instagram. I'm not very good at getting back to people because I'm just so busy. Uh, sure. and, and I kind of my posts aren't that regular. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I understand completely. Of, yeah, it's about 500 pictures and counting. Oh, wow. Over a very long period of time. But yeah, I'm on, I'm on Instagram. My handle is at Kiesh, K-I-E-S-H. All right. We'll, we'll also put that in the show notes <laughs> for this episode over at camnoir.com. Uh, Thank you. Mark, this has been so much fun. What a great delight. I really am, I can't wait to, to see what you do next and uh, love to have you back on the show in the future. Yeah, anytime then. It's been a pleasure. All right, so that was uh, Mark Patton, BSC. Thanks so much for being on the show. A lot of fun. Uh, it was so great to talk with with Mark, and uh, I'm really enthusiastic. I hope that the Silo comes back for another season. It was it was so much fun. Yeah, and you now should, I got to see it. Now you have oh, to boy. see it. Yeah, you do. I, I was uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, where they were interviewing Warren Littlefield, former chairman of NBC and current producer, who's got a bunch of shows on the air, including he did like Dope Sick, which we we talked to the DP of Dope Sick, a bunch of other stuff. And the interviewer said, we have 600 series going into the strike. How many make it out of it? And he said, 300. He said it was just a guess. Like, he, he didn't say he knows better than anyone. He said, my guess is 300. And it's like, half of the shows we like might get might get the axe. According, according to Warren Littlefield, who is someone who uh, knows a whole lot more about the TV business than, uh, than certainly me. Mm. Interesting. Anyhow. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're in uncharted waters. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen. So I hope Silo makes the cut. Yeah, I hope so too. I, I think it's got a better than average shot. There's a lot fewer shows on Apple TV, and uh, I think it's one of the best. So, so yeah. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our short end time of the show. It's the time when we talk about our obsession of the week. Uh, do you have an obsession? Are you all about something? What's going on in Ben Rock's obsession I, I, I mind <laughs> world? Yeah. Obsession. Obsession. Red flag. What are your obsessions? <laughs> so my obsession this week is 
uh, I love it when somebody uh, way more high placed than me in the business and famous and smart and experienced says the same shit I've been saying for years. Holy crap. Isn't that great? <laughs> so I'm referring to no less than Emma Thompson, mm-hmm. who is an amazing actor, in a New York Times article that uh, we can link in the show notes. And the headline is, you're, you're going to be right there with me, Emma Thompson is right. The word content is rude. <laughs> and, it, is, it is the C word. Yes. And I just want to say, uh, a direct, this is from a, a speaking engagement that she gave. And some of the stuff that she says is so completely in line with like my nonstop rants about the word content. And I just want to quote her directly. A phrase like streaming movie or theatrical release or documentary podcast communicates what, where, and why with far more precision than gibberish like content. If you want to put everything under one tent, entertainment is right there. I, I was literally saying the exact same thing to <laughs> someone the other day. Yes, entertainment <laughs> is what all these companies used to be entertainment companies, not content companies. Uh, But she goes on to say the studio and streaming executives who are perhaps the primary users and abusers of the term love to talk about content because it's wildly diminutive. It's Mm. a quick and easy way to minimize what writers, directors and actors do to act as though entertainment or dare I say art is simply churned out and can be churned out by anyone sentient or not. It's just content. It's just widgets. It's all grist for the mill. Thank you, Emma Thompson. That's really good. That's really good. yeah, I, I'm, so, I'm so glad you shared that as your short end. That, that, that's spot on. I just feel like as human beings who like movies, TV shows, podcasts, live theater, music, books, we got to stop calling it content. Like we need to stop calling it content. When I see somebody on YouTube saying like, do you want to up your content game? I want to just give that person a big old middle finger. Your content, no one cares about content. Content is garbage. Content is filler. It's nougat. It's garbage. It just makes me angry. Like right now, you and I are technically nougat. (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to throw. I didn't mean to throw nougat under the bus. But it's like right now, you and I are technically making content because we're making a podcast. But it's just supremely frustrating to think that all the hard work that every that someone puts into making a movie or a TV show or dare I say it, a YouTube channel is just is just reduced and reduced and reduced to this idea of content and I know I say it over and over again to call it content is to call attention to the container that it goes into and that is their user experience and their algorithm it be it YouTube or Netflix or Amazon Prime somebody architected this entire experience for you to watch and then they're like and we'll fill it up with some crap and that crap is the stuff that you and I have spent now 10 years talking about on this podcast it's not crap it's people's life's work and it really frustrates me. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, ultimately, this is semantics, but I think it's important. And I really think that being specific is important just in regular speech and regular conversation and using those words that actually fit in that are descriptive. And you, you've heard me get on my high horse about what is a filmmaker and what is, you know, a mm-hmm. cinematographer and what is a camera professional of any sort, because all of these things just become meaningless when uh, when people who are not doing what it is they say they're doing, say that they are doing it. But mm-hmm. but beyond all that, I think it it's derived from content creator. And really, when we're talking about creators and the content creators and YouTube, it was very, very clear about the people who were on there. The YouTubers were not YouTubers. They were content creators and in short, just creators. And so what are the, the content creators creating? Well, they are creating content. And so HBO, now Max, 
tried to list everyone who was a uh, mm. important leadership team member of all of the different shows that they have on their platform as creators. And they backpedaled real quick because well, the unions wouldn't allow it. It was it, it was against union rules about how you can credit writers and directors and actors. <laughs> And I, I, I will say that it's just actually not exactly fair to lump everyone into the same buckets all the time. It's exactly like Emma was saying, you need to have some sort of specificity so you can understand when there has been a ton of effort, time and attention paid to the details of something. And when someone has been holding up their phone and talking into it for 13 seconds. But you also, know, I would say like Mr. Beast, you sure. know, who is a quote unquote content creator, like, that's not what he's doing. That it's guy's not at basically all. basically got a TV show. He just does it on YouTube. That's exactly like right. He's got a big budget. He's got a he's support got staff. Hundreds of people working for him. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's not yeah, just content. It, if it's just yeah. me talking into my phone and posting it on YouTube, I still, I just have a problem. Like, call it a vlog. That's a vlog. Just call it a freaking vlog. The fact that we all get lumped into into this one garbage term that to me is a techie term, but it, it, what Emma Thompson here is, is sort of saying is an executive term, I think in all regards minimizes all the work that all these amazing artists are doing. And we talk to them day in and day out here. And if it wasn't important to you and I, we wouldn't be doing this. And I just, I feel like we need more of a wave of people who are pushing back against the idea that we're all making filler. So I'm going to get off my high horse, but I can't recommend highly enough that everyone go read this article about Emma Thompson. It's not a long article, so check it out. Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? Well, if you were anywhere near social media or traditional media this past week, you probably saw some semblance of a story about you two performing live in Vegas inside this thing called sphere or mm. the sphere the sphere is this very large dome-shaped building that essentially has video walls all on the inside and the outside sounds which, really cheap to make <laughs> it was about 2.3 billion uh, a billionaire dropped a bunch of money and built this thing and it's supposedly uh, an I don't know, an 18K screen or maybe it's a 14K screen or something like that. And also it's got some number, a thousand of speakers or whatever it is. But as you go through the technical specs the downside, of this, it gives you cancer. Go on. <laughs> I couldn't help but be reminded of uh, the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in which there is a <laughs> fictitious band in the future called Disaster Area. And Disaster Area is so loud that they play on one planet and their music like destroys other planets and you have to listen several planets away in a bunker underground and I like forgot about that detail i've yeah, read all those books too well it, it that that one left left an impact on me and i can't help but think that sphere depending on what the artists who are on the stage choose to do and it won't just be live musical acts there are going to be movies and other types of things there is a Darren Aronofsky uh, project of some sort. Oh, yeah. I don't know a exactly. My, a friend of mine, Matt Sewell, was one of the sound mixers on the Darren Aronofsky project. So I think they're going to have to be very conscientious of camera movement and very conscientious of 
things like shutter angles, the temporal motion in a space like that, because if all those panels really are working together, I have a feeling that it could be very seasick inducing for for people if the Ooh, entire rolling world, shutter in that the Ooh. entire world that you are in and every seat vibrates and has variable transducers and things so you can feel this experience. But this um, is like if somebody gave William Castle ten billion dollars. <laughs> What I think is really interesting about it, though, is that you two clearly paid a lot of money to kick this thing off. They have a residency right now where you can buy tickets. And if you're willing to have an obstructed field of view, you too can have a seat for only $500. If you'd like to have a unobstructed field of view, it's going to set you back a fair bit more, like an extra four or $500. It is not an inexpensive Eww. show. And if I recall correctly, there is many thousands of seats inside. I don't remember exactly how many it was, but I want to say like 18,000. It is like, it's not exactly an intimate performance space. You're going to so they're going to make their like $4 billion back on the first show that U2 does there. They're going to make back a lot of their money. Uh, and it you know, looks the good like news it, for U2 is that they can quit their day jobs. That's true. They can, they can quit their day like, job. Though. Finally, <laughs> finally, the finally. age can stop being an Uber driver. <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, people talk a lot about the state of concerts in the world and, and ultimately I think I've kind of figured out they're, they're only showing like very sort of like artistic things on the outside of the sphere. But really, I believe that very shortly, this is going to become like a very expensive billboard in Vegas. I have a feeling they're going to start taking advertising and imagine the advertising on the outside and inside that you will be subjected to. They're going to figure out every single way. It's not just going to be an artist installation. It's not I just mean, that's. That isn't that everything on earth? It, well, in Vegas in particular, oh I, my God. I I can't wait. I'm sure there's going to be QR codes on there. You're going to be driving by and snapping pictures and QR codes of, of the sphere. Now, to, is it an actual sphere or is it a dome? Is it a full sphere? Like it's a full sphere. They call it a sphere. But if it was really a sphere, it'd be spherical underground. It's not. It's it's a dome. It's a dome that, that looks like uh, it looks like a sphere. You know, if you could imagine a pyramid extends uh, you know, further underground, it's the same thing with this. It looks like there. There is more to it, but I'm sure there isn't. I'm sure that's it's just a, it's a yeah. dome. Yeah, it's a dome. We're not a geometry podcast. I'm just <laughs> saying it's not a sphere. Coming up next on the geometry podcast. <laughs> rhombuses. Pythagorean's Do theorem is neither. Dodecahedrons. We're going to get into all the good stuff. Isn't that right, Ben? Oh, we just lost three quarters <laughs> of our audience. Uh, all right. Well, then then we'll end the misery. I'm bringing up the sphere not to mock it. I think it's very interesting. And I, I like that there are people taking risks with entertainment, mm -hmm. especially large format, because I think large format is a cinematic experience. And there are people who are going to be shell out hundreds of dollars to see something that might be pre-recorded to have this experience. And by all accounts, so far, the initial reviews of U2 Live was quite impressive. People had a really good time. I, I hear they put on a show that's good and entertaining if you like their music. And I kind of do. Yeah, it's like kind of a they're they're hearkening back to their their heyday. This is the Actung Baby U2 oh. UV. So I think there's a lot of like classic and a lot of stuff that they've kind of mixed in. That's, you know, we're, we're they're playing various the ways or whatever. Yeah, ex exactly. So I think it's very interesting. I think that it's definitely an experience. Is it an experience that people are going to seek out or want to repeat or go see Celine Dion or whoever might be the next person to have residency there? 
Maybe. It all depends. Is it worth a thousand or multiple thousands of dollars to see your artist in a, you know, your artist of choice in a space like this? Maybe. People are certainly paying for that experience. I remain on the fence. I'm not rushing out to see it. I'm going to be in Vegas on a layover in a couple of weeks, but I'm not going to rush out to try to get a glimpse I mean, of the sphere. it's expensive, but would yeah. you pay a thousand dollars to see Tom Waits in there? Because I would. Hmm. That's a hmm. tough one, right? No, I'm going to I'm going to say no, I, I don't no. think I don't I don't think so. So my apologies, audience. I hope that this is sort of on your radar and that you take it with a, a grain of salt and, and, and research it a little bit before you uh, decide to, to fork over your money. Maybe it's it, you know what, if, it, if it's worth it to you and or you were at if you, you attended you man, there's a yeah. lot of people who just love you, too. And that that's that's true, too. And if you've seen it, if you were at that U2 show, uh, write us, let us know. Well, we'd like to hear what you think about this. Yeah, I, we're not I, hating on you, too, or the the dome as i will call it it's no disaster area but yeah you know it's uh (laughs) anyway so so ben uh that's just about going to do it for the show uh where can people track you down should they want to track you Uh, down please go to benrock.com you can uh check out my reel you can find links to all my social media friend me on those things i will usually accept and uh unless you look like a crazy person and, uh, <laughs> so, so you're and, judging uh, people superficially i understand well you know you, you scroll through you doom scroll just through one person's thing for a minute to kind of ask yourself is this someone who i want to have seeing pictures of my dog what's pretty funny though is that if you kind of look like an axe murderer like you've dressed up like an axe murderer being the horror aficionado you are i think you might actually kind of be into that no, no, I'd be okay with that. Yeah. I'd be okay yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah. That that wouldn't bother me. Uh, I think anyone who knows me a little would know the things that would make me go like, mm, maybe not. But uh, so far, there have been none of those. Anyone who, who has ever tried to friend me who is a fan of the show, well, I'll be happy to talk to anyone. Fantastic. I don't have anything better going on. Ilya, how about yourself? Where uh, where can people find you? They can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, or if you're going to be in Atlanta uh, this weekend at Cinegear, I'll be there. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize there was a Cinegear in Atlanta this weekend. There is. It's coming up on uh, Friday and Saturday, and it'll be interesting because there's not very many vendors, but because there's been such a slow period of time, I think there'll be a lot of people there. So it'll be interesting to see. So yeah, it's sort cool. of like the the big production gear event in the South. So that's nice. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Enjoy Atlanta. And uh, before we go, who do we need to thank? Hey, let's thank Alana Cody putting together uh, this great interview today and uh, several more coming up. Uh, I have to double check. I think I might even have one in the morning. And then we got to thank Ben Katz, who is slicing and dicing and editing and trimming. And, you know, hopefully we made his job not too hard today. So he might have uh, cut a lot of geometry information out of he could could have. He might have cut out the geometry stuff. He might have done some some cutting. So anyway. And then, of course, Kay Zelatrachi. Kay's who I saw last week, which was a lot of fun. It was great to have a hang with him and to to catch up. He is a very talented composer and he played me some examples of some work. Dynamite stuff. Holy crap. That guy is so talented and he does other things too. And I I know that he's been like making music videos for people and stuff. So he is uh, a multi-hyphenate in the strongest sense of the word. He's like a at least triple threat. Yeah, if, if you need something done, you could do way worse than Kays. Kays is a talented, talented man. You could even consult for you. He could, even if yeah. he didn't want to If you're to looking you. to write, direct, do sound design or music or VFX or color grading, I bet he would consult with you. I bet he would too. All right, Ben, I think that's just about going to do it for us. Uh, you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.